Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode two of The Playbook. My name is Zach. And I'm Matt. And we're excited to bring you our conversation with J.S. Bolton. J.S. is a 2014 MIT graduate and current senior manager for trim and chassis manufacturing at Nissan Automotive in Smyrna, Tennessee. Take a listen as we talk about the value of the manufacturing industry, business insights that can come from any level within the organization, and even leadership lessons from a simple water fountain. And we're excited for you to listen. JS, we are very excited to have you here with us. Thank you for inviting me. First of all, just to kick off, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background? Of course. So, um, like many people, or everyone in LGO, I was mechanical engineering undergrad, um, really liked knowing how things work, and I think it's very valuable as just a member of society to understand how things work. But I didn't go into engineering after undergrad. I actually went into investment banking, uh, focused on industrial companies, transportation, and logistics. I worked at Morgan Stanley for two years in New York and then one year in Hong Kong. And during that experience, what I realized is the companies I was sitting across the table from, people who made things, uh, one particular one made trailers uh, like for trucking, um, they were doing something real and physical, and I was making spreadsheets. So I began thinking I wanted to have a career where I was making a physical product. So I left banking. I worked at a small startup in San Francisco that made trailer tails, which were aerodynamic devices for fuel economy. And during that period of time, I applied to LGO. At LGO, um, I was very happy because it was exactly what I was looking for, making physical products. And I also liked the idea of operations as a way you can have significant people leadership at a young age. People who go into things like tech or finance or consulting um, are often doing interesting things but not leading large groups of people, whereas manufacturing and operations, um, you're not just doing an interesting thing, but you're also in a significant leadership role pretty early in your career. Um, So I did my LGO internship at Nissan came back to Nissan full-time, and was given all the leadership challenges I wanted and more. Um, So at Nissan, I've spent time at our plant in Canton, Mississippi, as well as our plant in Smyrna, Tennessee. Been on the supply chain side, on the manufacturing side. Um, I've led production lines. I've done strategic work. um, And I've taken what I learned at MIT and what I learned in my time before MIT and really grown a lot. We'd love to hear more about like why you think manufacturing is important and like why that uh, is really gives you meaningful work and how you think like MBAs can really benefit from it. So I mentioned the leadership aspect. Yeah. Uh, large groups of people, this is manufacturing operations and include operations more broadly when you think about working at an Amazon fulfillment center. It's not manufacturing, but it still is operations. Uh, it is leadership of large groups of people. So I think that's certainly one point. Um, Making a physical product, I think, is also very valuable. Um, You are adding value quite literally to our society uh, versus just ideas. And then I think uh, people care, people in MBA programs I know care a lot about making the world a better place. That's part of Sloan's motto is uh, management ideas that advance, shoot. You'll have to look it up, and then you can quote it back to me. Um, <laughs> Is it advanced math management practice or something? Yeah, yeah something. but <laughs> I, think, I think people really do care about They want to have a positive impact on the world. And I think manufacturing, you are, like, blue-collar jobs in general are very good for society, uh, very good for, as Americans in America, but in other parts of the world, it, they provide stable employment, 
good pay. Um, and it's people, you know, you very rarely do hear people talk about like social justice and manufacturing in the same sentence. But I think that if you want to have a big impact on a community, um, think about what a plant closing or a plant opening does to a community. It's, it's a huge impact. And so I think every day it's an enormous responsibility. Um, my team, it's these people's livelihood. It gives meaning to their lives that they are making something every day. Um, the stability of the job is what provides for their families, and I, I get a lot of meaning from that. And I think that um, I sleep at night better knowing that I'm doing something like that than I'm sitting in an office, uh, you know, coding something on a computer. And a lot of people at MIT are very capable of fascinating ideas coding something on a computer, but it takes a special person, I think, to be willing to be out on a plant floor leading people, talking to people that are very, very different from you all the time. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I'd love to delve into that leadership aspect a little bit. In that, you know, society, we're infatuated with good leaders. We, we can read all about them, but actually doing it is very different than just learning about it. So how have you developed as a leader managing people that are, are very different? And what are, the, what are some challenges there? I think a big point is listening. Um, so one focus I have uh, in my day-to-day job at Nissan right now is, although there always is something more urgent to be doing, I have a focus group every week with my hourly employees. So uh, right now I have about 600 hourly employees. So you think if I do one a week, maybe with 10 people, I won't, I won't meet everyone. But I'll meet some people and I will show them that I care and I'm listening. And a lot of times they have the pulse of the rest of the work group. So when you hear something's bothering someone, uh, there's things that might seem difficult for them to get fixed in their, in their work but are actually very easy for me to get fixed. Then there's other things that I can't necessarily solve, but I can take notes and say, hey, I've met with 200 technicians. This is a recurring concern. We've got to fix it. Here's the business case for fixing it. And that helps me prioritize what to do in my daily job. You think about uh, standard metrics in any production facility, safety, quality, cost, and then throughput. I ask the technicians, what do you think we need to do to improve quality? Um, And they come up with stuff that, of course, we already know about and are already working on, but sometimes they come up with stuff that we hadn't thought of. And you prove yourself to be a good leader and you by engaging them and by showing them you're willing to try out their ideas. So examples... um, I was in a focus group, and one woman was very passionate about the water in the water fountains tasted bad. She was like, it's nasty. Have you been to this water fountain at Bay Pole R48? It has, like, rust on the pipes. And I was like, no, I haven't. But after that focus group, I walked out on the floor, went to it, and I was like, yeah, that looks kind of nasty. I would not want to drink from that. And so, you know, the next week, I installed six new water fountains with the bottle filters, um, and for me, it wasn't a huge expense, but it really showed my team that I cared about what was important to them. But then the next time I saw that woman, she was like, hey, I want to talk to you about quality. There's this part we get from a supplier, and sometimes it's really easy to install, and sometimes it's really hard to install. She was like, so is there anything you can do about that? Mm-hmm. Well, well, yes, there is. But if you hadn't told me and had just struggled through it, we wouldn't have the right people working on it. Um, but I'd gained credibility with her because I had fixed the water fountain, which seemed like such a small thing. Um, but, you know, as a leader, it's like the small things lead to the big things. 
Yeah, I think that's that's interesting because when you show up to like a new job and you're this you know bright-eyed, bushy-tailed MBA or you know just someone new, it's hard to establish that credibility. But that's a really good story because it shows that you, you don't need any hard skills to you know listen to another human being and, and install a water fountain. So yeah, I didn't need to come to MIT to know that people want to drink clean water. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. So kind of moving. You know, back to MIT, uh, you, you mentioned you didn't learn about people, you know, needing to drink clean water, but what are kind of the skills that have, you've really seen be valuable, you know, in the beginning of your, you know, post-school career? One thing that uh, I think about a lot is what we talk about in leadership class at MIT, um, and so I know that's a big portion of the LGO program and fairly unique, uh, and one of the other uh, episodes of the podcast I listened to, I think it was uh, Lee Honeycutt talked a bit about leading from the middle, and I absolutely loved that class and got a lot out of it because it's one thing to read case studies about like the CEO did this and what do you think of it? Was it right? But none of us are CEOs right now, so when you come out of an MBA program, you're going to be somewhere in the middle, and you have to be able to influence what you can influence. Um, and that's influencing your team sort of below you, making sure that they're acting uh, correctly, as well as influencing management above you. And I think that can be sometimes a challenge to balance. Um, you may be asked to do things that don't quite sit right with you, so how do you make the case that actually the team should do something in a different direction? Um, or you may have people who work for you um, who who don't have the same view of leadership and are not good leaders, and how do you coach leaders at that middle level of an organization? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And what's, what's helped you as you to develop that skill set of leading wherever you are? Just trying it out and, and doing it, or have you found mentors too that have been helpful? It's always good to have people that can be sounding boards. Um, you know, someone you can turn to and say, hey, I'm thinking this, what do you think? And uh, I definitely have had several in my career at Nissan, and, you know, there's other LGO alums, but then there's people that totally different backgrounds, you know, rose up through the ranks from being uh, an hourly worker on the floor and are now my level. And it's, I think it's good to have mentors and sounding board people that have different backgrounds. Um, the conversation you might have with someone else who came from LGO is a different conversation than you have with someone who rose up through the ranks, and both opinions are valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something else that I, that I want to touch on along that is, just has there been an experience you've had where there's been a problem and you've had just no idea how to what to do about it? And how do you, when you feel like you're underwater a little bit, what helps you go about finding an answer? Certainly. I mean, uh, I think I sort of joked that Nissan gave me all the challenges I wanted and more. And one of my first roles, um, I was running this warehouse in Mississippi, and it was one of those situations that, like, what can go wrong did go wrong. Everything possible was going wrong, and it felt like we were spiraling out of control. And so we were providing parts from our suppliers, they came to the warehouse and then we we're supposed to provide them just in time to the assembly line. Uh, but our warehouse management system wasn't locating the parts in the right place, we weren't keeping up with unloading the trucks and then loading them back to the plant at the right pace, and so we were shutting down the assembly line, which is very expensive. 
and um, also I think very frustrating. So anxiety was rising. One of the things that I did in that point was, it's actually we'd, we'd been running production six days a week, so all day Saturday and then Sunday, because the warehouse was behind, we were asking people to work Sunday to catch up to be prepared for Sunday night, the plant starting up again. And it was one Sunday coming in and just saying, okay, we know we have a million problems. There's probably 20 different things we could be working on, but let's spell them all out on a whiteboard. Let's prioritize them. Let's assign owners. Let's assign dates. Uh, how are we going to approach each of these versus just it's this huge mess. It's breaking down the problem. Um, and it was a tough time. I mean, probably th there were six months in there at this warehouse where it felt like we were never going to get out of it. But we worked our plan, and suddenly we were running, and you realized I didn't get 20 phone calls today saying the line's going to shut down. You don't realize until you're out of it necessarily that you've succeeded. But that same approach of looking at all the factors, breaking down the problem into bite-sized chunks is something I've done with other challenges um, so my role right now, uh, a lot of my challenges are quality related. And when you have a quality problem on a vehicle, there's a lot of different influences. You know, is it the installation process? Is it the part? Is it the dimensional accuracy of the body of the vehicle? Is it some equipment you're using? Um, and I found you have to look at every single factor because it could be multiple factors working together. And that's something I've really worked on coaching my team is a lot of times people will have an assumption, well, the last time we had this problem, it was this. So mm -hmm. it's definitely this. And it's like, no, let's look at all the factors because if you jump to a conclusion, it's the wrong conclusion. You've wasted a week or two fixing something that really wasn't a problem. JS, could you talk to us about one of the most like, difficult situations you've been at at work? And it, I mean, it could be a manufacturing problem, it could be a people problem, but yeah, what are some of the, what are some difficult, maybe, maybe let's take it besides like a manufacturing problem, what are some difficult situations you've been put in as a leader or as an engineer or as a person? I think people's problems are always the hardest because um, people are emotionally invested in their work and when things aren't going well, uh, and you have to give tough feedback, you're not just talking about their work, it feels like you're talking about who they are. Um, so I've, I've definitely had some challenges where um, giving feedback that isn't accepted um, creates a tough situation. And especially when you're coming in as someone out of an MBA program, a lot of times the people that are reporting to you are younger than you, and it takes a while to establish credibility. And it takes a while to establish that um, you're not giving them the feedback because you're on a power trip. You're giving them the feedback because you want the team to succeed. Um, but what I found is, and I can think of a couple specific examples, people I've had to have a very tough conversation with early on uh, become some of the best members of the team later um, because they really bought in. They saw the results. They gave the change I recommended a shot, saw the results, and then bought in. I like that. Thank you. Yeah. Unemployment rates are low, like, in these manufacturing sites and things like that. So, like, how do you manage, like, training your people and, like, really, like, getting the best out of, you know, people in your division? Training, manpower, attrition, these are all topics we talk about all the time. And you mentioned Nashville is particularly low unemployment. Mm -hmm. 
So how do we become a workplace where people want to come and they want to stay? I think you want to set people up to succeed. You don't want their first couple of weeks on the job to be very frustrating. So how do you go about doing that? But also not baby them. You know, you don't want to make it too easy so they get the wrong impression because it is hard work. So we've recently done quite a few things at our plant in Tennessee to address that. One is what we found is um, people come in and the plant itself is overwhelming. It is enormous. There's cars moving everywhere, thousands of people. Uh, and talk about as a leader, you want a mentor and a sounding board. Well, hourly workers also need a mentor and a sounding board coming into an overwhelming environment. So we have these trainers that we've selected. We call them TSTs, and it stands for three-step training, uh, which is the idea that there's someone doing the job on the assembly line that is the person currently doing it. Then there's the person training, and then there's this third person who's there as kind of a coach. Uh, so that person is the one that the person training uh, can ask the questions that maybe, hey, I don't want to sound dumb, but what about this? Or... Um, can kind of give them tips and tricks uh, that the person working on the line, building the vehicles while they're training, doesn't have time to do. It's just a third sounding board. And we found that if you pick the people with the right personalities for that job, the coach, mentor personalities, uh, it really helps new hires feel comfortable and feel like they have a buddy on the inside. Um, another thing we did, and this was actually an idea that came out of one of the focus groups I was talking about earlier, our line runs very quickly. Uh, it runs at 62 jobs per hour, so tack time is just under a minute. And that can be incredibly overwhelming. You can, you can read a work instruction that says you're going to do steps A, B, C, D, and it all makes sense when you're reading it. But then when you get out and you have to do it in that tack time, it's scary. So we wanted to create an intermediate step between reading a work instruction and trying to do it on the line. So we created an offline training area um, where we set it up, dimensionally uh, exactly the same as the line. We have a vehicle there, but it's stationary. So you can practice doing what you need to do a little bit slower. And that was actually an idea that came from one of our hourly workers. They said if there was any way you could practice at a slower speed, we kind of went back, put our heads together, and we're like, yeah, we can set that up. Um, and it, you know, of course, there's a cost, but it's worth it. And what we found is, you know, someone will be, getting frustrated with learning something on the line, and them and their TST trainer can go to this offline area away from all kinds of people watching you and just practice over and over and over again until they get their speed up. That's really cool. Yeah. Because there's so many there's so many experiences I have like that where I'm nervous about something, whether it's interview or a job or a task I need to do, it just practicing it makes me feel so much better about it. That's a really good idea. Yeah, we've seen we've seen a lot of success from it, and so we did it first in my area, and the vehicle was built up, you know, had the parts on it as it would be when it comes into my area, and what we found is people from other parts of the plant really liked it, so they began coming down to use it. <laughs> but of course, some of the stuff, uh, you know, if they were further on in the process, uh, there's no seats in it, and so they can't practice working around the seats. And they're like, oh, we need our own uh -huh. offline training area as well. <laughs> Uh, so, so we you, can practice. You started a trend. And that's, I mean, benchmarking and horizontal deployment is something we talk a lot about at Nissan. So if, if one area does something well, how can the rest of the plant 
or if one plant does something well, how can all the other plants in the Nissan, Renault, Mitsubishi Alliance copy that? Um, so try something out first. If it works well, go take it a lot broader. And so and we do a lot of that. I've sent, since I've been in Smyrna, I've sent um, members of my team, frontline supervisors and managers, down to the plant in Canton and said, find some stuff you think they do better than us and let's bring it back and implement it in Smyrna. Um, and then they'll, they'll build relationships with people in Mississippi and those people will come up to Tennessee and say, oh, here's a couple of things we think you guys do well that we'll take back to Mississippi. Now, are there any challenges in that? I mean, is, are there communication challenges or anything, kind of the cross-functional improvement uh, between plants, or has it been, is it pretty easy to, to get people back and forth and, and kind of learn from each other? I think it's fairly easy. I think it's a big part of our culture. I had the opportunity, I was working on a project in Mississippi when I was in the body shop, where, as it turned out, uh, Renault is the experts at material flow through a body shop. So I had the opportunity to go visit some of their plants in Spain and France, learn what I could from them, and then bring it back to our shop floor in Mississippi. And there was things that weren't applicable. Um, we were building the huge Titan pickup truck, and they were building some tiny cars for the European market. And mm -hmm. so there's stuff you can't copy. It's just it wouldn't work in our context. But then there were other things that were totally applicable. Um, so really valuable, I think, to benchmark and to look around. And you don't need to reinvent the wheel every time yourself. If someone else is already doing it well, just bring it. Yeah, I mean, do you think, and do you think that there's, you know, are the issues between, I mean, I'm not saying there's issues, but are the challenges that you face in Smyrna kind of the same as Canton, or do you find that there, you know, there's some similarities, some differences, and do you mind kind of going into that Sure. Both plants have their strengths and weaknesses. Smyrna is the older plant. Uh, it's kind of the mother plant in North America, um, which brings with it a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of people that have been working in the Smyrna plant for 30 or 35 years. So they have history of what's been tried before and what works and doesn't work. Canton's a much newer plant, uh, so there isn't as much of that history, which in, can, in some ways can be bad because there's just not as much experience and experience is very valuable. On the other hand, it can be good because much more open to new ideas. You know, there's no feeling of, hey, we've done it this way for 30 years, so we're not going to change. Um, I think uh, culturally, the, the two plants share some common Nissan DNA, but they're in different parts of the world and different workforce. So if, if you're a good listener, you can adapt your leadership style to either place. But if you think you can take something exactly the way you did it and exactly the way you talk to people in one plant and replicate it in the other plant, you might fail. Janice, going, going back to you a little bit, I'd love to understand with all the pressures that come from an, an operating line, the stress of leading a bunch of people, what helps you stay motivated, stay energized, stay optimistic? Like, What are some personal things you do inside work or outside of work to stay, uh, to keep going? Inside work, I love solving problems. So if you can, you know, fix one thing every day, you can stay motivated that you're making a difference. Um, so it might be something as small as the water fountains uh, or, you know, solving a big quality issue um, or some sort of people development thing. One of my favorite things is being able to recognize technicians with good ideas or good catches, being able to promote people, uh, help their careers, very motivating. 
outside of work. I mean, you, you've got to do things outside of work. Otherwise, uh, you'll get burnt out. So when I moved to Mississippi, I didn't know anyone. And I made the decision that, okay, I've got to meet people. How am I going to meet people? Um, and I decided I was going to train for and run a marathon. So I joined a marathon training group in Jackson, Mississippi. And through that, met a whole group of people that were also training for a marathon. Uh, I think running is a great release from stress from work. You can kind of mull things over in your head, and maybe they don't seem as big of a deal after a two-hour run as they did before. Um, and, you know, you, you, have to, you have to be social. I think as LGOs, we're all very interested in having a successful career, but you have to have some perspective on that, and you have to uh, be able to take yourself outside that work context. So right now in Tennessee, a group of us that sit in the same office – Friday afternoons, we cut out of work a little early, and we all go golfing. And it's the people we work with every day, but we don't talk about work. You know, on Friday afternoons, we, we're joking around, talking about outside of work stuff, uh, and building that kind of, you know, fun relationship outside of work. Now, I've got um, some LGO kind of popular request questions that uh, some of the classes put together. Um, and we'll start with, uh, you know, what do you see the hype around autonomous vehicles doing to your business? Automotive industry going through a lot of change right now. Um, if you think about the traditional car market, people buying a personal vehicle that they will drive themselves, that's maybe not going to be the future. Um, so you look at autonomous, uh, rideshare, um, there's a lot of change. So at Nissan, we talk about we don't want to be a car company. We want to be a mobility solutions provider. Hmm. So we're providing mobility. Now, what form that takes, yet to be seen. On a day-to-day -day level, though, there's a lot of hype about autonomous vehicles. It doesn't change what I do every day. I'm building the model year 20 Rogue, and it's not autonomous, right? So, <laughs> yeah. so uh, on a day-to-day -day level maybe less impact. The more technology we get uh, into our vehicles adds to complexity and certainly adds to workload on the line. So if you have more sonar sensors, you know, on the bumpers that will beep if you get too close to a curb, mm -hmm. somebody's got to install those sonar sensors. And I think that that will only grow with autonomous. So when people talk about, and you know, the other big buzzword is automation, and is automation going to remove jobs from people? But the thing is, uh, the cars themselves are getting more complicated. So, you know, there's if, when you're adding more work to the vehicles, you can add automation and still have the same number of jobs because there's actually more work to be done. Mm -hmm. Now, where do you think that provides challenges? Because, you know, you look at a car or any vehicle and it's become more of a, not just, hey, how do I get from my home to work? It's what's the experience in the car? Does it have, you know, Apple CarPlay? Like... Wi-Fi, I mean, like, does it have an espresso machine in it? You know, like, yeah. ridiculous <laughs> things. Like, um, you know, what challenges does that put on, you know, you guys on the manufacturing line? Is it, like, tougher quality issues, or is it training and, of the workers that now have to install, you know, more complex systems, or, or, or what? A car has always been an experience, I think. It's the, it's the largest purchase people make outside purchasing a home, mm -hmm. and it's something that's very tied to people's identity, 
Um, they, you know, feel a lot of pride in whatever it is they drive. If they're a Jeep person or if they're a sports car person or, you know, they drive a truck. They, they really feel invested in that. So I don't see all the additional features necessarily as a, as a change from that. It's just uh, expectations are higher now in terms of connectivity and electronics. Um, it changes the nature of jobs on the assembly line. Uh, wiring harnesses are actually quite difficult uh, for people to install. Uh, the clips you have to use with wiring harnesses are tough on people's hands, mm -hmm. but wiring harnesses are also a really poor application of automation because robots have trouble selecting between wires, especially wires that could get tangled. Mm -hmm. So it's something that has to be done by people, at least given current technology, and it's hard for people to do. Yeah, I remember looking into a car. A friend of mine was was working on one, and there, even from the 90s, there are so many wires everywhere. I imagine it's just getting more and more pervasive. Yeah, the area I manage, um, it's Zone 11 is the... Uh, is the work group that does a lot of wiring harnesses and it's it's one of our highest attrition zones because wiring harnesses are so difficult to install so I spent a lot of time thinking about how can we improve those jobs uh, because we're not going to get away from installing wires like there will be wires <laughs> so how do we do a better job installing them yeah now Jess what car do you drive and why uh, I drive a Maxima okay it's the four-door sports car. It's a lot of fun, <laughs> sleek styling, made in Smyrna, Tennessee. Um, but I've actually driven a lot of different Nissan models over my time. One of the benefits of working in automotive is we do get, uh, we get a lease car every six months, so you can try something new. Um, so I've had a truck. I've had the Frontier truck, which is our smaller truck. I've had sports cars. I've had the Z and the Infiniti Q60. Um, think two-door cars are too small for me. Uh, I like to be able to have skis, golf clubs, mm -hmm. stuff like that that does not fit in a sports car. But right now, the Maxima. Love it. Have you stuck with a similar color throughout those, or do you <laughs> switch those up too? Um, so right now, I have a silver, which, I don't know, I think is kind of basic. <laughs> but... Uh, I've had the best color I had. I had a green Rogue. We make a, it's like a forest green. It's really shimmery. It's pretty unique. Um, majority of cars on the road, as I'm sure you guys know, are white and black. Uh -huh. I've never had a white or a black car. Oh. I always try to go for something different. Nice. So I've had red, blue, and now I have silver. I had green. And, you know, speaking of the different, you know, models you guys have, moving forward, where do you see that going in terms of, you know, number of SKUs, are they going to you know, kind of reduce the number of models made more towards like electrification or do you still see like pumping out big, big trucks and, and things like that um, being a big part of the future? So I'll give a couple different parts of this answer. Like you guys know, we're in the alliance with Renault and Mitsubishi. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at global platforms where there can be one platform that's maybe customized for each brand uh, in each market but it's built on a common base with commonly sourced parts. So that's definitely a trend. So you know you might keep the same number of models, but they'll actually be slightly more similar. Um, electrification, there's going to be some vehicles that it's their current form, but they get a hybrid version. There's other things that will be totally new for electrification. So on Tuesday, I think, Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, the Tokyo Motor Show, um, 
we released a new concept, the Aria, which is uh, electric SUV. It's very sleek, uh, looks like the future. Um, so I think we're going to be seeing a lot more like that. Um, and then you asked about pickup trucks. Uh, trucks are a huge part of being a player in the U.S. market. And we're very proud of our trucks. Uh, the Titan won J.D. Power Best Initial Quality for a full-size truck this year. Mm. Um, it's made in Mississippi, uh, completely designed, tested, and produced in the U.S. So I don't think that's what people think of when they think of Nissan and uh, Japanese brands, but we're very proud of our trucks, and I don't see us leaving that market. Yes, I think the one of the last questions from me are there some general principles or not necessarily a quote but just some like like if there was a message that you could put on a billboard or or something similar to to convey to people what what, what would you share do the right thing what makes that easier to do or harder to do I think you have to have confidence and courage in your convictions. So even when the right thing isn't the popular thing or the easy thing or the thing that will make your boss happy, you still have to do it. And it's you know, making the right decisions for your team, for your workers. I talked about you know, it's a lot of responsibility to lead a large team and you want to do the right thing by them, but also the right thing by the company um, and the right thing for yourself. Well, JS, thanks for uh, you know sitting down with us today. This was a, a great conversation. Thank you, guys. And that wraps up episode two of the playbook. Big thank you to JS. It was great to speak with her, and we'll continue to bring you more episodes. Stay tuned.